recently I was approached by a friend of mine, Kyle, who runs a really cool podcast called Kaiju Cast, which I highly recommend you check out. It'll be in the show notes. But Kyle reached out and Kyle, you know, for a guy who who does a podcast called Kaiju Cast, as you might imagine, is quite well versed in kaiju, tokusatsu, and things like that. But I was shocked, shocked to hear that he wasn't really familiar with anime. And he sent me a message the other day that said, yo, dude, I have a suggestion for you and Patrick. You know, we're like the same age and we have much the same background, but I have zero history with anime because he moved around so much during his adolescence and he missed out on the American anime boom. So he has this affinity for anime, but he has absolutely no knowledge of it, even though he's made it to middle age and he has no, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Institutional knowledge of the shows that made so many anime fans around the world. And more importantly, Patrick, the shows that made us. So that's what I want to talk about this episode. I think that we should go down the top five anime series that made Patrick and Matt and articulate why. We're going to write essays. We're going to have AI write the essays for us. And we're going to turn it in. And we're going to get our degrees in anime from Anime University. How does that sound? Okay, but we're going to draw this out. This is the first week, and we're going to do your top five, and the next week we'll do mine. How does that sound? Wow, this is big news. This is great. So I actually had a hard time with this because there are the anime that made me, but those aren't necessarily the anime that one should watch if they wanted to get a feel for the arc of things. And I don't know whether I want to go into this in full detail on the mic here, but I literally did the top five for each decade, starting from when anime was born in 1963 with... Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy. Actually, Matt, Japanese animation started around uh, 1920 when silent filmmakers were experimenting with animation. Wrong! That's actually wrong, um, believe it or not. I used to think that too, but the term, the word anime only dates back to 1963, and it was coined by Osamu Tezuka to differentiate his cartoons that he was making in Japan for TV from imported Western ones. Because until Astro Boy came out, the only televised anime or animation that was available in Japan was either super short stuff, like really short, like kind of interstitial things or like embedded in other shows, or it was like Popeye, which was actually huge here, like really, really, really huge here in Japan, or the Flintstones, which wasn't so huge here, but huge enough. So you either had Hanna-Barbera or you had like really short kind of like, you know, just tiny things. And until Astro Boy came along, there was a lot of concern that Japan didn't have what it took to make hit animated television series. And then Tezuka, or more importantly, Tezuka's like animation studio, disproved that by making Astro Boy. Now, unfortunately, Tezuka was wealthy enough from the royalties of his manga career, which was huge and stellar and transformative, that he agreed to animate episodes much cheaper than it actually cost to make them at a loss. And that set a precedent that has basically screwed the anime industry to this very day. But nevertheless, that's when anime starts. Anime starts with Astro Boy. Okay, so you're going to start in the 1960s with uh, the top five. This is the top five anime of the 1960s, okay? I, I didn't actually watch any of these until much, much later. Well, I did watch one of them. Some of them were available and some of them were not. But these are, I would say, the five anime series that are the definitive anime shows of the 1960s. And they begin, of course, with Astro Boy. Astro Boy, I've heard of it. There you go, Astro Boy, on your flight into space, rocking on through the stars, for adventures soon you will make. Astro Boy bombs away, 
on Nicolas Cage. It's like a CG movie from Hong Kong or something like that. Well, I, bu- I believe it is available streaming on like Crunchyroll. It's black and white. It, it's kind of janky by modern standards, but it is the original. You should at least watch an episode or two of it. And it's certainly the anime that made like Fred Patton and Fred Schott and all of the Freds uh, that we know and love so much. So it's really transformative. And it's a robot. Next, number two is has to be Mock Go Go Go. Have you heard of it? Speed Racer by another name. That was the first really big, I think even bigger than Astro Boy series when it was exported abroad. Peter Fernandez, like doing all the voices. Writing the scripts and uh, doing the voices. Not all of them. It was him and Connie Orr. I actually met uh, Peter Fernandez and Connie Orr and I asked him, how did you come up with those scripts? He's like, we would just have like four martini lunches and just go back to the booth. And just let yes. it rip. Yes. It was, it's kind of like the Mad Men. We need to make a Mad Men series that's about the dubbing of Mock Go 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 and making of Speed Racer. I think that would be awesome. So that's that's classic. Number three, you are going to probably roll your eyes at, but I think it's it's really key. I wanted to say Gigantor, uh, Tetsujin twenty eight, but it's actually Princess Knight. I'm not going to roll my eyes at Princess Knight. Osamu Tezuka. Well, you know, Princess Knight is great. It's it's considered the seminal. It's Osamu Tezuka, same guy who did Astro Boy, and it's it's seminal in the sense that it's a kind of it's the first really shoujo anime manga, and it's you would think that it would get much more attention in modern times because it's about a person struggling with their gender identity, wouldn't you say? Well, I would, yeah. I've never watched Princess Knight. It looks like a cool character. It was not exported globally, so this is one no, it, that- it, they uh, did, they, But they did make a couple test episodes and like it was just shot down because the idea the idea is that it's set in this fantasy like kind of, you know, swords and sorcery kingdom where the uh, king only has a, a daughter as his heir and she uh, dresses as a boy to get taken seriously and proves to be like the strongest warrior- like fighter, you know, and leader in the kingdom and rises to the very top. And it's kind of awesome. It's drawn in this very Tezuka cartoony style. I think the reason we don't see a lot of it now is that while that was a hugely progressive, you know, by modern standards kind of thing, it ends on kind of a bummer, like a a dated bummer where, nope, I got to say this, they force her to choose between being a girl and a boy instead of like saying, well, there's like strength in both sides or like, you know, live how you want. Like they basically compel her to be a girl at the end, which doesn't really, it kind of undercuts the whole message of the thing, but it is a classic series. It's the 1960s. Let's forgive Tezuka. It's kind of key. Number four, Star of the Giants. Kyojin no Hoshi, a baseball show. Sports. Like a sci-fi baseball show, though. It's like all about this like like crazy training that the kid has to go through to become the Star of the Giants. Like he puts on this like crazy spring suit that like, you know, makes him, you know, builds up his muscles even when he's just like walking around and his dad is like throwing flaming baseballs Adam, it's like because dad's like the original table knocker over, isn't he? Yes, yes. Well, it's like that movie Whiplash, like where you torture a kid enough and then he becomes a genius. It's basically that. That's why, by the way, this is Star of the Giants is basically why the movie Whiplash didn't like do any business in Japan because people were like, Yeah, oh yeah, we know that already. That was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. That's, that's how I became a famous jazz drummer. I was beaten mercilessly. Number five in the 1960s, and that everybody should watch if they want to be a 1960s person, is the original Gegege no Kitaro by Music Ishigeru. That kicked off the yokai boom. So that was like a, a really, really, really big deal. So do, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? I, 60s? Yeah, these, these are interesting choices. Yeah, I think you would have an interesting view of anime. Kind of off the beaten path a little bit. I will choose uh, my five for the 60s uh, next time and uh, maybe fill in some blanks. But I, like, I never saw Gege no Kitaro until very, very late in the game. Yeah, me too. I mean, most people haven't seen... I'm just saying that was like, if, if you're talking about 60s anime, if like this were 1970 and we were looking back at the best of the 1960s, those shows I think would be the ones you'd be like, hey, maybe this genre has some legs, you know? Okay, so how about the 70s? Okay, I'm going to quickly do the 70s because the real like anime that made me is in the 80s and that's really what Kyle is asking about. But let's just say the 70s, okay? I'm just going to say this here, okay? Number one, and these are in order of when they aired. I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything like that. Number one, you ready? Space Battleship Yamato? No, Grandizer, Patrick. Grandizer. I really struggled with this. It's by Gona Guy who did uh, Mazinger Z. Do you know? Wait, so you're going to give Grandizer like a higher ranking than Mazinger Z? Yes, yes. Or Get a Robo? It destroyed Italians and French people. Like... (laughs) Like it literally, well, without Grandizer, we, we probably wouldn't have the Power Rangers for better or for worse because the guy who was composing all the music for it, whose name is escaping right now, quick, Saban, Haim Saban. It was Haim Saban composed the French Grandizer theme song, made a ton of money off of that because, you know, songwriting where the money is really at, composition rights, and just plowed all of that money into more anime series that eventually culminated in him buying the rights to the, you know, the Power Rangers series and selling out for a billion dollars to Disney briefly. <laughs> I think Grandizer is arguably the exemplar of the giant robot form that Gona Guy laid out. Okay. Shoot me. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I like it. Plus, it's got UFOs and robots. Instead of shoot me, do you mean Shuki Levy? I mean, shoot in. Wasn't that it? Like Duke Pitt. What are these Big say? Shooter. <laughs> Big Shooter. I can sing. I go, you know what? I should sing the UFO Robo Grandizer. That's my karaoke jam, by the way, Grandizer song. But anyway, Grandizers. That's number one because it's the earliest. Number two is Yamato, the TV series. I know you're probably going to say one of the movies. No, I think the original series is probably the Yamato to watch. The reason you watch Grandizers because it kind of lays the groundwork for like all giant robot stuff. The reason you watch Yamato is because it's the first anime that like caused young adults to realize they didn't have to give up anime. That it was like actually had enough in there. Like it was enough of a mature storyline to literally start shifting anime from kid stuff into adult movie fare. Up until that point, anime had just been for little kids. And you start getting that kind of like quasi-militaristic space adventure thing that you begin to see later on in the 80s. I won't name any names yet because you're probably going to tap into those. Yamato literally laid the, the, it starts with like an apocalyptic, like nuclear bombing of the earth. And then you 
have a, a giant space battleship. It's having all these battles in space. You know, they come back to Earth. So this plot might actually sound a lot familiar because it was used for a certain anime again later on. But it's it's seminal. It's amazing. And the movies are great too. What 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 is the Yamato movie to watch? That's the what I wanted to ask. You're the Yamato movie guy. Um, I would say the best one is probably uh, Arrivederci Yamato, the second one. But um, it doesn't really make any sense unless you've seen the series and kind of know what's going on and know the characters. Well, the next one is a cheat because it's three movies rolled into one. It's the power of three in one. It's Gundam. Mobile Suit Gundam, the movie, one, two, and three. Like, you literally can't understand 70s anime or even 80s anime without watching Gundam. Actually, Matt, the uh, last two Gundam movies were released in the 1980s, so I don't think they qualify as being <laughs> Okay, old. let's I call think. it... Well, okay, you know, the Gundam series started then, so let's call it the TV series. The TV series is actually streaming on Netflix, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's pretty damn goofy, but it compared to the movies. But Gundam, do you agree? Do you agree? Do you oh, sure, certainly. It refined the giant robot concept into suddenly it's, it's quote unquote realistic. I, I don't know how realistic Gundam really is, given that the life-sized one in Yokohama still needs like a giant crane to hold it up, but it's realistic. Oh, and not just the giant robot stuff, but it also kind of takes the space opera stuff from Yamato to the next level and all the kind of world building. And oh, for sure. I, I think the world of Gundam is much bigger than that of Yamato. Yamato is basically the battle between, you know, humanity and the Gamilas, you know, and whereas, and the Comet Empire, of course, later on. But Gundam is like a Game of Thronesy, you know, kind of where you have all of these different factions and all of these different like bad actors and all of these things going on. Uh, but the next one is going to be a very, very personal, a very down-to-earth story. And you might laugh at this. I felt bad putting this in because it's really tough to see in English. Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Aim for the Ace, the movie. The Aim for the Ace movie. Aim for the Ace is a series about a tennis player. And it's kind of like the female version of Star of the Giants a decade before. It's directed by Osamu Dezaki, who's like one of the great, great, great anime directors. And um, what is it? The movie's Jump High Hiromi? Is that what the English title it's, was? Yeah, it, I, it's, I don't even know if it's available in English now. I think finally it's getting a Blu-ray release. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, even if you're not a sports person, I like I barely know the difference between like hockey and soccer or soccer or, or hawker or whatever. This is a great movie. It's great. It's beautiful. It's amazing. The designs are like so obviously what everybody in the 80s were kind of like basing their characters on, especially the female ones. Dezaki, of course, went on to create the greatest anime of all time, Mighty Orbots. Oh, you mean Golgo 13, the professional? Yes, that one too. So Dezaki is a, like, this is his crowning achievement, I think. More so than Ashtano Joe, Tomorrow's Joe? Yes. Okay. I think so. I think so. Okay. So this is where you come in next week. The fifth one in the in the 1970s is your favorite movie, Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro. What? What about the mystery of Mamo? I know. What are no, talking about? no. Get out no, of here. No. no. If you're going to be doing one, only one. Mamo is great, though. I love that. But Lupin the Third. I think if you watch these, if you watch Grandizer, Yamato, Gundam, Aim for the Ace, and Lupin the Third, you're going to be like, wow, this is what, in the 70s, you're like, wow, that anime that was for kids stuff in the 60s is really, I really wonder what direction this is going to be going in. You're going to be thinking to yourself. You're going to be dressing up like Shar Aznable and declaring it a new anime century in front of Shinjuku Station? Exactly. So Lupin the Third, for those who don't know, it's based on a French jewel thief named Arsène Lupin. And it was turned into a manga series by uh, a guy named Monkey Punch that was kind of a sexy James Bondy, but with a thief instead of a spy guy and his like wacky gang of 
of confederates and rivals, and he's always on the run from the cops, but always stays one step ahead. The manga is actually quite naughty. It's R-rated even. And when the anime first broadcast on TV in the 1970s, like it didn't do very well. Like parents groups were saying, you know, we're going to cancel this like kind of thing. And then the original director was fired and Miyazaki, a young Miyazaki Hayao was given the job along with Isao Takahata. And they basically made Lupin family friendly. Oh, you mean gentrified? Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, they, gentr- they gentrified the gentleman thief. They totally gentrified him. Because if you if you compare Lupin the Third in in like Castle of Cagliostro or Mamo to the one in the comic books, it's like he's literally like in every episode sexing up a lady in the, in the comic strip. And like there's lots of nudity and like slapstick and like butt slapping and like all sorts of stuff. In the Miyazaki's world, he's very much a gentleman. Like in Cagliostro, he's like saving like a 16-year-old, never lays a finger on her or anything like that. It's kind of out of character for the comic books, but very, very smart for expanding that character into like a massively popular, hugely popular in Japan. Like there's very few people in middle-aged uh, or older who don't know Lupin the Third. Go on the street, ask them. Tell them Matt is asking you to ask them. Tell them there's a pachinko machine at the parlor if they want to uh, learn about the franchise. There is, but Lupin the Third is Castle Cagliostro. It was also made into a video game, Cliffhanger in the uh, 1980s, like a, one of those really crappy Laserdisc video games. Cliffhanger, the game that keeps you on the edge of your toes. By controlling the joystick and the action button, you determine the fate of Cliff, a lovable outcast, in his quest to rescue one beautiful, breathtaking lady. But one mistake, and you've blown it. Will Count Draco strike the first blow? Will the princess be forced to marry someone she can't stand? Yeah, man, I thought Dragon's Lair was hard. Man, Cliffhanger was like impossible. You get like three seconds into it and you're dead. Yeah, it's like all hands, feet, hands. And like there was like, if you if you memorize the pattern, it's just like hitting this button over and over again just to like skip the laser disc ahead a little bit. It's like, why don't you just watch the movie, man? Did you find it weird that his name was Cliffhanger? And yet at the same time, he's like always in these situations that involve like, you know, cliffhanging? Hanging on cliffs? Is this like Phoenix Wright, ace attorney? Because he's always right and rises like a phoenix from the ashes? I, d- I don't know. It's like if my name was the Burger King. Or UFO Robo. Okay, now now we're in the 80s. This is my era, and this is where it's going to get most contentious. I can feel this. Are you, are you ready? Are your dukes up? I got my mitts out. Number one, Macross the movie. More than the TV series, huh? More than the TV series. More than the TV series. Yeah, but Matt, Harmony Gold doesn't own the rights to the Macross movie. We can't watch it. It's not part of Robotech continuity. And that makes me love it all the more. What? No, Macross the movie is great. It was like, before certain other films that are often talked about as the pinnacle of animation came out, it was the pinnacle of animation. So Macross was a series. It was the first TV series. It was aired in the States as Robotech. But now you can actually get the original Macross either, you know, subtitled or dubbed. Um, Anime Ego redubbed it in the aughts, I believe, and released it on DVD. Macross is really interesting because it is the first anime series that was made by anime fans. So you have a bunch of like 20-something nerds who are so obsessed with anime that they can't get, you know, any other kind of job or join society at large. They band together and they make this TV series, which is a straight up parody of Yamada. It's it's like a 100%, it starts with like an apocalypse. They get into a giant spaceship and they go off, you know, in search of salvation. The big difference being that they also loved robot shows and stuff like that. So instead of flying in little you know, space fighters like they did in Yamato, they fly in these things called Valkyries that transform into robots. And then 
Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The entire Space Fortress transforms into a robot. It was mind-blowing when I was 11 years old. This was like the most amazing thing ever. Well, cementing the connection to Yamato is the fact that one of the main creatives, one of the directors was Nobori Shiguro, who also directed a lot of Yamato as well. Yeah, he was the, I think he was the, the quote unquote, the adult on staff. Do you know what I mean? Because you had a bunch of like young bucks who didn't really know what they were doing in a great way. Like I, they, they just, they were learning the ropes and he was the one who actually knew how to get a movie made and, or a series made. And Macross is kind of legendary because the animation quality is so, so uneven in the TV series. Like you'll literally have these things that look like they were drawn by like grade schoolers, like basically anything involving humans. And then you have these insanely, insanely detailed space battles that are absolutely incredible, where obviously the attention of a lot of the young animators was going. And like so many young animators got their start in that series. Famously, Anno Hideaki, he was the one in charge of all of like kind of the apocalyptic nuclear, you know, explosion footage and stuff like that and uh, a lot of others too but uh, Macross you need to watch Macross if you can't get Macross watch Robotech if you can't find Robotech get a wooden chair watch it but don't watch Robotech the movie even though there's a new 4k scan of it out there somewhere on YouTube Robotech is now a movie in an all-new story never before seen on TV see your favorite Robotech heroes plus all new characters in the biggest action adventure ever. We've come to bury you. All units to battle stations. God, I was watching that. It's just so bad. Like, it's, so back in the 80s, like you couldn't just broadcast anime. You had to kind of culturize it. Colonize it? Deculturize it? De deracinate it? I forget what it's called, but it's, uh, well, localization, I guess, is what you'd call it. So like Hikaru Ichijo becomes Rick Hunter, which... I guess, helped smooth that show's uptake among the average citizens of America, but... Captain Growball becomes Captain Glowball? Yeah, or something, you know, Shammy becomes Shammy. Roy Fokker becomes Roy Fokker. This this is this is breaking it. But anyway, seriously, Macross. Try to watch Macross if, if you want to understand 80s anime. If you can't, whatever. Number two. Can we talk about number two? Yeah, we can talk about number two. This one is unfortunately, I don't think available in English, but it is such a great series. Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. It's my favorite Gundam series. Bandai definitely had it available in the US for a while. It's totally different from any, it was like an OVA. So it's basically a mini series and it's standalone. So you don't have to, you know, worry about watching 300 episodes and you don't really need to know anything about Gundam to get into it. It's unlike the, you know, the, the first series is like set against the backdrop of young people being forced into war. They don't want to fight. This one is all about a kid, a little kid who lives on a space colony and the space colony is peaceful, but it, it's slowly gets pulled into the, the war that's going on. And it's interesting. The character designs are by Haruhiko Mikimoto, who did all of the Macross character designs. It's written by Hiroyuki Yamaga. He was one of the Daikon film animators. That's actually one we should have mentioned. Daikon film. That's another thing people should watch in the 80s. He wrote like Wings of Onyamis and uh, Otaku no Video, do you know? And like he worked on like Fuli Kuli and like Garen Lagan and a lot of those other things. It's a seminal sort of series. It's really amazing. And the, the mechanical designs don't look a lot like any of the other Gundam ones. They're really amazing. They're really beautiful. Double Lady was like, I somehow got the tapes when I was a kid. I don't even know how. Undubbed and just watched them over and over and over again. I really recommend it. 
I'm more of a stardust memory man myself. That's a good one too. That's a good one too. Moving on, Crusher Joe, the movie, Crusher Joe, do you know? So Kyle asked for the movies that made me and you and Crusher Joe is definitely one. I watched that again. We had like a dub of a dub of a dub that we'd gotten at, a, at like a Star Trek convention or something. And my friends and I, we just watched it over and over and over again. It's kind of like the sci-fi version of like Indiana Jones, like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. It's just like a space, it's a swashbuckling space adventure with really Really cool designs. Uh, the mechanical designs are all by Kawamori Shoji, who did all the Macross stuff, among many other things. It's it's a visual spectacular. It, it's not really a great story, <laughs> I hate to say, but it's a great, like the action scenes are just amazing. And I know you agree. Yeah, it has this perfect mix of like action and comedy. And one thing that my friend Michael Pinto pointed out, he says like the way the characters are animated, it's like they're acting. They're so expressive and constantly in motion. It's, it's very un-anime like that yeah, in yeah. the sense that it's not static the characters are giving performances i always think about the fighting scenes in there because there's like these really cool scenes of like space battles or like you know at the end a powered suit starts beating on a tank with its fists hands down the best scene in there is in the disco there's like this this disco battle like crusher joe and his fellow crushers go get wasted in like in a, in a bar and they just get into a bar fight and it's amazing and like there's all of these little like cameos by famous animators like you know akira toriyama shows up in there and like you know of Dragon Ball and like uh, fame and all many other things and these cameos so these like little like character cameos of so many famed anime people are in that scene it's really cool you know what I'm talking about right next Gunbuster aim for the top Gunbuster yeah I can't argue with that now this leads back to why I put aim for the ace in here Gunbuster I saw not knowing anything about it and it's a really fun series it seems to Americans to be or Westerners I should say to be really unique uh, sui generis as they say it's set in the in a, in a high school a space girls high school in the future when Earth is under attack by aliens but it's kind of far off in space and they train kids to be pilots of these robots and they ship them out to fight on the battlefields in space on these big space battle cruisers and it's this kind of bittersweet melancholy thing with like the main character is kind of a klutz and has a really hard time like piloting but she's like you know she has to get out there and do it anyway it seemed really original and it is it's great it's cool it's amazing it is 100% scene for scene frame for frame character for character a parody of aim for the ace the tennis anime from the 1970s Dezaki Osama's thing and when I saw aim for the ace which is amazing in its own right I finally realized how much Gunbuster had taken from it. They replaced tennis with giant robots. They replaced like the tennis finals, whatever it is in Aim for the Ace with the giant battle against the, you know, alien fortress at the end. It's the same series. It's great though. Like, I love it. It's like super, super operatic science fiction. Like they play with like relativistic space time stuff. So there's like time dilation, like, you know, and it, it really, it reminds me in a lot of ways of one of my favorite Western sci-fi books, which is the Forever War by Joe Haldeman, uh, which seems kind of funny because that's a gritty kind of like, you know, comment on the Vietnam War and his experience in Vietnam. And Gunbuster is really polished, bright, kind of happy, schoolgirly sort of thing. But it's really similar in a lot of ways. So, I mean, the thing that impressed me the most about Gunbuster was it starts off really silly and really cliche, like girls training at a school. Yes. And like, I, I imagine a lot of people might drop off 
after the first episode or yes. two, but increasingly serious and dramatic. The stakes get raised, and it, by the ending, you're just probably going to be like sobbing on the floor. And it gets dark. It gets dark. And the sequel, there's a sequel to it, which I don't include. In I here. like the sequel. I like Gunbuster too. It doesn't really compare to the first one, but it has its moments. But I literally, I, when I saw it with our friend Hamabe-san, he was literally like, he couldn't even form a coherent sentence over dinner. He was, he was crying so hard. It was like one of the greatest, like going out to see anime in the theater experiences I had with a friend of mine. And then there's a final one. Let's, let's talk about the final, the anime of the 80s. It took place in 1989. A number. The Sound of the Funky Drummer. Another summer. Do you know what it is? Oh, it's Akira. Yeah, that was actually good. That was, that was really good. I came to Japan to become an anime voice actor, Matt. That's why I'm so good at this, okay? Aki, where do you even begin about this film, Patrick? This is one that everyone seems to like. This is the people's choice for like greatest anime of all time, isn't it? Based on a manga by Katsuhiro Otomo uh, that is really amazing in its own right and was actually one of the first blockbuster manga to be imported to the States by Marvel Comics in the mid-80s. The theatrical version of Akira is famed for two things. One, having an utterly incomprehensible plot and two, having like literally the most exquisite hand-drawn animation ever committed to celluloid. It is insane how detailed every single frame of that movie is. The music's amazing, Geno Yamashiro Gumi, so it's not like idol music or anything. It's like basically this Japanese drumming and it's kind of avant-garde traditional music. But it fits this like weird apocalyptic 21st century that looks kind of a lot like ours in a lot of ways. Famously, so it's set on the eve of the 2019 Tokyo Olympics. Is this starting to sound familiar? That get canceled uh, by, <laughs> in the manga, it's revealed that a pandemic cancels them. In the anime, it is Akira himself who cancels them. Huge chunk of the plot takes place in the shattered Olympic Stadium. This is all sounding a lot like the real 2019, 2020, when the Olympics got delayed uh, and almost canceled by the pandemic. But uh, it's, it's an amazing, 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 amazing film. I really recommend it. Yeah, the image of the Prime Minister dressed up like Mario seems like something out of a post-apocalyptic science fiction manga, that's for sure. Well, the funny thing is, like, all of these anime are set in the far future that's, like, a couple years ago, isn't it? Like... Remember my Macross flashback from the far-flung futuristic year of 2012? I think I remember 2012. Wasn't that back when we were still happy and not trying to escape into video games? Exciting. Mysterious. Intense. Graphic. Provocative. Raw. This is no ordinary animation. This is the exotic, bizarre, and beautiful world of Japanese anime. And this is your invitation to enter with the modern classic, Akira. Critics say Akira makes Blade Runner look like Disney World. It's action-packed, the future of animation. Siskel and Ebert call it the video pick of the week. Akira is yours for only $4.95 with subscription when you order the best of Japanese animation collection series. With these state-of-the-art sci-fi classics, you will enter a world beyond imagination, a future out of control, and an experience you will never forget. Don't say we didn't warn you. Call 1-800-414-4422 now to order Akira for only $4.95 plus $3.79 shipping and handling. Future volumes are $19.95 plus shipping. Mature audiences only.